Hello and welcome to The Consistency Project with E.C. Sinkowski. My name is Patrick Cummings and every episode I have the distinct privilege of presenting E.C. with a question on subject matters that range from nutrition to fitness to the choices we can all make to live a healthier, more functional life. By exploring both the principles at play and the actions worth carrying out as a result, we aim to get you thinking, get you moving, and get you taking more consistent steps toward optimizing your well-being. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hello, and how are you, EC? Awesome. I'm ready for five by five. (laughs) Yeah, we have our quick bites. What number is this? Six, seven? I forget which somewhere number seven. This is the seventh quick bites we've done. So quick bites for folks who might be new is when you go through all the many questions you, you receive from listeners, from folks on Instagram, from folks on your email list, and you pick out five to tackle in around five minutes. And oftentimes these questions are certainly good questions, great questions, but maybe not worthy quite of the 20 to 30 to 40 minute EC deep dives. So these are the kind of questions that you love answering, but we don't always, we didn't always have a place for them until we came up with quick bites. So that's mm-hmm. what quick bites are. Are you ready? I think so. Right. <laughs> Let's do it. First question. Let's see what Tiana happens. Five asks. minutes. Here we go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Tiana asks, I'm a 24-year-old ex-collegiate athlete who does CrossFit six times a week. Since I started macro counting about a year and a half ago, I've been prioritizing high volume, low calorie food choices. I tend to go for an, an enormous amount of vegetables for each meal rather than high carb foods like rice or pasta. With that being said, I am eating much more than 800 grams of vegetables and fruit a day. I avoid high calorie processed food like protein bars and even high calorie foods like potatoes and pineapples. Do you think it's important to mix in more calorie dense food options? I'm eating a large quantity of food due to the low calorie nature of my choices, but sometimes I wonder if I'm doing this wrong. People often comment on the amount of food I am eating. I would say that 90 to 95% of my diet is whole unprocessed veggies, fruits, and lean meats. Is this the way to do it? Or am I missing out on some important nutrients in more food and more dense food choices? Yeah, it's sort of impossible for me to tell you if you're missing out on any nutrients. You know, I often get these questions, is what I'm doing okay? We kind of talked about that in the in the diet yep. validation podcast. But she also did share some specifics about what kind of choices she was making, which we just sort of edited out for, for the question. But the only way to really know if you're missing something is we'd have to look at each individual food you're eating, the portion size that you're doing, and look at the, especially the micronutrient analysis of it. Now, if I had to guess, I would guess she's okay. You know, it's a relatively mixed, largely whole food based diet. It's harder to mess things up on a predominantly whole foods diet, particularly when she's got mm-hmm. these whole food protein sources in there as well. You know, theoretically, potentially, there is more to gain from a health protective standpoint to have a wider diversity of phytochemicals. Remember, those are the compounds that give fruits and vegetables their bright colors, and they tend to have these health protective properties like being antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. The deal there is there are thousands and thousands of them, which we don't totally know what they're all doing. And so this is one of the reasons why I push people to have a diversity of plants in their diet and to include things like potatoes or grains or different fruits like pineapples, because I think the most optimal diet will include the most diverse plant matter. 
Mm-hmm. There is going to be a point of diminishing returns there, though. You know, we don't have evidence that maybe, you know, eating 27 different types of fruits and vegetables every day and switching that every day after each other is is necessary, right? Mm-hmm. But as an example, potatoes and pineapples certainly do have some compounds besides vitamins and minerals than, let's say, the fruits and vegetables that she's eating. So if anything, yeah, I'd mix it up a little bit more with some of those whole food options where possible, where available, where she likes them. I think the bigger question, and I, I typically start with this for a lot of things, is is the why, right? Why are we doing this? And and trying to figure out what is making Tiana want to eat this huge volume of food. And it doesn't totally appear clear to me why she's making this choice. You know, fine enough if she's not into protein bars, but even though, of course, you know, they can be part of a healthy diet, but it's sort of like, why are we avoiding potatoes or pineapples? And I think there's Mm -hmm. been lots of things in mainstream media that people get scared of. So I kind of want to go through a a, a couple ideas. You know, if she's doing this more from a fullness thing, if she just likes eating a lot of volume because maybe she's hungry on macros or she's, you know, just likes feeling full, fine. Like she's happy with it. That's a fine reason. Keep on keeping on. Maybe though she thinks that whole foods are always better, in which case I would kind of say not necessarily. I mean, I love people eating whole foods, of course, and generally on average, it's it's more nutritious. But we have to remember that we only need so many micronutrients in a day. And of course, macronutrients, but she's got that in line by tracking those. But you know, I think we get in this idea of more is always better. And that's not true. There, there's at a, there's a certain amount of vitamin A, vitamin K that you need. And, and then after that, you don't really need it. I don't need 500% of my hard day of vitamin C, right? I need 100%. And this is why and how some processed foods can fit in the diet a minor portion, but we don't have to have everything have these perfect concentrations of all of the nutrients if it's above what we need. And I know that she's probably thinking, well, I don't totally know that I'm getting enough unless I do the check or you tell me. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But it sounds like the volume is so excessive that I have a feeling she's probably hitting hitting those targets just fine. So from that reason, I, I don't know that she needs to be doing it. I think another belief out there is that, you know, lots of veggies are always better than fruits. She talked about in her in her message that she was having a lot of spinach and kale. That's sort of what I deleted. But, you know, again, I want to remind people that Vegetables are not always better than fruit or even potatoes. Potatoes have higher concentrations of certain vitamins and minerals than kale. And we talked about that in the animal versus plant-based podcast. So, you know, I think there's this notion that I just need to have kale. And it turns out, well, a diet of just kale isn't ideal either. And if we look at, like, for example, what the USDA recommends for leafy vegetables, it's only like a cup or two per day, right? And and so, again, her volume might just be a little high because she has this belief that that more of those are always better. And then the final concern that she might have of, of choosing this route, I think, is one about this you know, choose low glycemic foods. And I think this is another idea that's kind of been incorrectly applied in people's diets. And assuming that you're otherwise healthy, you don't really care what insulin is doing at any one point in time. What you do care about is the total quantity of foods that you're eating across days, weeks, and months. And that's, that's appropriate to do. And so I don't really necessarily push low glycemic in absolute absolute terms for people and, and would just rather her be tracking her overall quantity, which of course she is with macro. So if she's fine enough with this, fine enough. I just don't see a ton of rationale for not working in 
you know, especially something like potatoes or pineapples, it sounds a little bit like a nuisance just logistically, right? So much volume, mm. so much chewing, so much preparing, you know, yeah, <laughs> keep some of those veggies in there that you like for sure, but the, mix it up with some whole foods. Why not? And get some grains in there even. Have, heaven forbid I say the word grains, but I don't see that she needs to be doing this if I've made some assumptions about why she's doing it correctly. Cool. Next question is from Nicole. It seems like I'm seeing more of this lately, bulking and cutting. I'm interested in your take on how useful this is for the majority of the population. Seems to me that since you can't gain just muscle and you can't convert fat to muscle and you can't lose only fat, that this is just a fancy term for yo-yo dieting. <laughs> I'm sure my view is overly simplistic, but are there real measurable gains to be had here for most of us read not bodybuilders, not competitive athletes. Yeah, one of the podcasts I'd like to refer people to is that muscle mass versus strength one. You know, I think what gets lost in the I want to gain muscle discussion is that it will always lead to performance gains. And especially if you're doing CrossFit stuff, it, it, it might not because, you know, making sure that muscle mass is actually productive requires a lot of training. But putting that aside, you know, I get it. People like to add muscle mass because of just aesthetics or even it helps with metabolism, which we've talked about before. So it's fine enough as a goal of just to add muscle mass. You know, in Nicole's question, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but comparing bulking and cutting to yo-yo dieting, it's certainly not meant to mean the same thing in the mainstream, but I think the comparison is really interesting and it might actually mm. shake out to be that way in, in some populations. So yo-yo dieting in the mainstream is more referring to or assuming to refer to fat gain and loss, right? And yes, these processes don't perfectly occur in isolation, but yo-yo dieting would be somebody who goes on the fad diet, they lose 20 to 30 pounds of fat, maybe they lose one or two pounds of lean mass with that, but they lose mostly fat and then they gain it all back in six months only to repeat that cycle of kind of on and off again. Bulking and cutting is definitely used more in the bodybuilding space specifically with some change in muscle mass, right? So it's not just taking on and off the fat, they would gain more muscle, of course, some fat comes with it, and then they cut down on that. But the but one of the big differences would be the bulking and cutting population is certainly doing way more training than kind of the mainstream yo-yo dieting population. Mm. So this is why we're going to have more of a biasing muscle mass gain than just sort of switching fat, if you will. Of course, they're not perfectly working in isolation, as she mentions, but you can bias, hey, am I going to be gaining more muscle or, hey, is this more of a fat loss process? But I, but I think the real important part of her question was, are there the real measurable gains for most of us here, right? The not competitive bodybuilders and the athletes. And yeah, I think for the most part, no, you know, if you're not a competitive athlete, you're not a competitive bodybuilder. I would not try to do these add muscle mass quickly and then lean out sort of phases. Instead, what I would do is train hard, eat correctly to train hard. And what you'll find is that form follows function, right? You're going to get strong and lean. And the problem with this process, though, is it, it just doesn't happen very fast, right? And, and we kind of talked about this, I think, in that muscle mass versus strength podcast. But what, what happens is people will go on these strength cycles, and I'm not inherently against them, but people will go on like these six-week you know, mass gain templates. And what happens is like, must, you don't gain that much muscle mass in six weeks. And so this is where I really like Nicole's comparison to yo-yo dieting that oftentimes I think kind of 
for us in the non-competitive space, we go on these strength sort of cycles and it's sort of an excuse to eat whatever you want and cut back on the cardio. And so a lot of people will end up kind of just gaining 10 extra pounds of extra credit. <laughs> you know, they don't slap <laughs> yep. on all this muscle in this six week period, especially if you're not a beginner. And so in that sense, I loved her comparison that I do sort of think for many of us, it can be this less extreme version of, of yo-yo dieting and that for the recreational athlete who wants, of course, the goal of to add muscle mass and lose body fat as we talk about all the time. <laughs> what should they do? Yeah, keep that protein at least at 0.7. If you're super into it, you can push it up to one gram per pound of body weight. Make sure you're training hard with weight. Make sure you're training hard with intensity and volume. Push yourself. Do all of the training stuff. Don't get lax on the diet. And then in about 10 years, <laughs> your form is going to reflect all of that hard work, right? <laughs> and, and just we can't underestimate what happens with time versus this six-week on and off cycles that she points out. Yeah. Yeah. The old 10-year ten, ten time frame. So <laughs> you, you had everybody right until that one right there, Reese. Oh, God. I know. Nuts. You can definitely see some changes before then, of course, but it just you don't end up looking like Matt Fraser after six weeks or Rich Froning or whoever it is. <laughs> Pick your avatar. <laughs> Next question. I think I'm or maybe pronouncing this right. Treka? He or she asked, I was wondering your opinion of elimination diets or using that with a cleanse to quote unquote, jumpstart the process of cleaning out your system to prepare it for eating healthy. I recently worked with a health coach who started her 12 week program with a reset of sorts, which required a solid week of nothing but fruits, veggies, and two servings of protein per day for the first week. Then it was a gradual reintroduction of other foods a few weeks before you could hit carbs by way of grains or potatoes or dairy and such. Do you think that there is benefit to this? I feel I felt a little anxious when I started that being said, I am glad I completed it. But my head was filled with all the things I quote unquote, couldn't have for a while. Yeah, I mean, all the way back in episode one, Patrick, we talked about detox diet back when we were young, we were so young. much younger then. Those days, <laughs> those days of 20, 2019. Anyway, if memory serves, I think one of your questions in that, ep that podcast was kind of this was sort of, is there a value of resets? And I I'm not really wild about resets or extreme eliminations because it generally operates under the premise that you're cleaning out your system, jumpstarting the system, detoxing the system. And, and that's just not how detox works. As we discussed, there's no accumulation of toxins with the possible exception of the accumulation of persistent organic pollutants and fat cells, but there's debate about whether or not that's problematic, but there's no accumulation of stuff in your kidneys and your lungs and your GI tract. It's just incorrect and it's fear mongering for you to buy the supplement or to buy the program because your body is detoxifying and eliminating constantly, just constantly. So when it's done under this idea of you've got to clean out your system, no, no, I don't agree. I'm also not particularly wild about all of the food eliminations. Grains, potatoes, dairy are often cut out of people's diets. Just, okay, now I'm getting serious about my diet, so you have to cut them out. Uh, I mean, of course, cutting back on them if they're in the form of Cheez-Its and, and French fries and ice cream is a fine enough idea. But I don't think mm -hmm. people really need to be, you know, really strict about quinoa <laughs> and roasted potatoes and plain <laughs> yogurt. Like, it's just a little much for me. And so I don't also like it from that perspective, because I think when we think about it that way, we start to think that those foods are unhealthy, right? And that ideally we shouldn't be eating them type of thing. So I don't love that either. 
I, I also don't love a lot of these trial elimination diets to find quote optimal foods for you. That's another quick bite question I have. That's not technically mm. in here, but you know, this is a really hard line to draw because nutrition does improve your wellness. And I also want people to trust the signs and symptoms they have and, and to, and to go seek help when they need help. But I do think there's so much new emotion in nutrition. I think all this idea on how you feel after your food, we have this hyper awareness on it that, oh my gosh, if you have a little bit of low energy in the afternoon, or you're not perfectly happy, or you don't have the mental focus to finish, you know, some task at your job that of course it was what you had at lunch or breakfast, right? When in reality, mm -hmm. maybe you just have two young kids and a full-time job, right? <laughs> and it's, yep. it's not the potatoes, right? It's just your life. And so <laughs> start blaming I, your I, kids, stop blaming <laughs> the potatoes. That's what I do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like become this thing that we are so concerned about what our last meal is and linking all of how our yeah. feelings to our last meal. And even some of the symptoms people will say, people are like, oh, I feel really bloated after a meal. And it's like, are you bloated or you just have food in your stomach? You know, or it's like, oh, I have gas. And it's like, yes, yeah. you just ate beans. Like these are normal functions. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be afraid of them, right? So anyway, I think there's also this hyper awareness on how you feel that I don't love. And then finally, another thing I don't love about them is kind of what they already identified in that sometimes these complete eliminations end up in the binging or the craving and the thinking about yeah. all of the things that I can't have. And so I just sort of see it as, well, let's learn how to incorporate foods in a normal way, not necessarily make these swings between we're restricting and now we're binging, right? So obviously, I'm not a big fan on all of these points. I will say on the flip side, Certainly, sometimes things like this help people to get back on track. So I don't like to be to too dogmatic. You know, she was eating lean proteins and fruits and veggies. Those are certainly good enough. It wasn't like two weeks of celery juice or something totally extreme. So I don't want to go on a tirade too much, although I guess I already have, about something that really <laughs> isn't that harmful, like her, the body's resilient enough to withstand this. There are certainly worse things that could have been happened, but it just sort of makes me flinch because I think those reasons I mentioned lead to a lot of these ideas that just sort of perpetuate and are really just junk science. And I would love to get away from teaching practices that aren't really going to be used in the long term. Like if a long term diet can include grains, potatoes and dairy and even processed foods, which it can, do we need to go through a period of elimination? Why not we just learn how to include them in a healthy way instead of, again, these wild swings between, no, you can't have it, and now you can have all of it, or you go off the diet mm -hmm. or whatever. I'd rather just spend the time you know, on what a real diet, mixed food diet looks like. We can rename this podcast. I think we figured it out, too. Mm -hmm. Things I do not love. I think that would still love. be just as appropriate as the as the consistency project. Things it's, I do not love by EC. It Sinkowski. is true. I I mean this week <laughs> supplements. <laughs> <laughs> Things I do not love. It's hard because Next question. the body is so resilient. And yeah. even in a case like this, I know I know we're ready to move on, I'm sure over my over my time, but it's like maybe there was a psychological benefit of them getting back to a routine, of them including more yep. whole foods, right? So it's like, it's really hard to just draw a line in the sand and like never, never go through a two-week mm -hmm. period where you eliminate something. Why? Because it, it can have positive and negative effects. Yep. So yep. things yeah, I don't absolutely. love is that, that softer <laughs> balance. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. Because part of this is habits, right? And and habits mm. aren't always logical, but sometimes you need to rewrite a habit before you can kind of stick with it. And maybe that's what the two weeks was, was, exactly. was rewriting a habit of snacking every night at 8 p.m. with whatever was in the fridge or whatever, right? And exactly. Exactly. I think what I love you always do, and I think it's so valuable, is always ask the question, why? What are we mm. actually trying to accomplish here? What? Are, and then let that question be the filter for like, okay, is this the thing? Or am I actually trying to solve the 8 p.m. snack? Because there's another way to solve the 8 p.m. can't stop snacking. It could just be stop buying the thing that you always snack on, right? could be something else that mm -hmm. isn't always necessarily the, in this case, an elimination diet right? yeah. or eliminating things. Totally. All right. Next question from Sarah. I've been doing the 800 gram challenge for about two months now. I lost about seven pounds, which puts me close to my goal and I feel great. Where I am struggling though, is that all of this fiber has me running to the bathroom many times during the day. Do you have, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm in my head, a 10 year old boy still. Right. So now we're talking about <laughs> things that would make him laugh. Do you have any tips to manage or prevent GI distress? I've added bananas, peanut butter, and a little cheese, but none of them seems to make much difference. Surely I am not the only one with this problem. Yeah, feels great, except for some GI distress, which is a sort of a bummer <laughs> here. I mean, congrats on the weight loss, but, but not so great on the distress. Yeah, definitely not the only one with this problem. Generally, of course, when people start the 800-gram challenge, they have more fiber, right? Eating more fruits and vegetables, more fiber. Mm -hmm. But the, the issue with that is how much fiber you're taking in can vary widely because, of course, the 800-gram challenge doesn't tell you which ones to eat. So if you are relying on some fruits and vegetables, you'll have a way different amount of fiber than others. Now, the guidance on fiber is that every 1,000 calories you eat, you should have about 14 grams of fiber. So, you know, with our typical 2000, 2500 kind of numbers of calories per day, this puts most people in the ballpark of 25 to 30 grams of fiber. And, and typically being a little higher than that's not a not a problem 35 40 grams, you're not going to have typically massive GI distress. But again, it depends on what your choices are. If you're doing a ton of berries and avocados and leafy greens and broccoli and beans, you're certainly going to have a lot of fiber. So I think the first thing for Sarah is just to look at, okay, how much fiber am I eating in a day? And because we have to remember that other foods have fiber too, grains, nuts, even protein bars and supplements. So she'll, she's going to want to take a look and see, okay, what kind of total number am I hitting? And maybe I just have to knock out a couple choices and maybe switch out some, you know, I don't know, some of the leafy greens for cantaloupe or something like that and, and cut down on the fiber. Because generally it's more of the insoluble fiber, which is linked to diarrhea, and unfortunately, the types of fiber are all mixed in food, so I can't tell you it's just this or that, but you could always see, okay, these are my three top volume foods, kind of Google if they're high in insoluble fiber and just mm -hmm. knock down the portion size or whatever. Okay, so that's the first general concept, look at overall fiber. If that doesn't pan out, then I would start looking at your choices in terms of whether or not they are high in FODMAPs. FODMAPs mm -hmm. is an acronym for fermentable, oligo, di, mono, saccharides, and polyols, which basically are just a group of short chain carbohydrates that are poorly digested. Now, poorly digested means they can have an osmotic effect because instead of being broken down and absorbed, they're sort of just in your GI tract and then they can become fermented. But during that time that they're in there because they're not being broken down, they can draw water into your GI tract, more water into your GI tract, more out the back door, right? So what I would recommend to Sarah is to Google the Monash University and look up kind of, again, the fruits and veggies that you're eating and see if they're high in FODMAPs. And what you can do is try eliminating them or again, 
at least cutting down in the portion sizes to see if that has an effect. And I don't like people to start there kind of for the last question that we just mentioned, but I think people yep. have this penchant to sort of always go the elimination route when it, when we want to try to keep as many fruits and vegetables in the diet as possible. So I'd first just sort of see, is this an overall fiber thing and cut out some, maybe some volume there before I start trying to take out specific sources in my diet. But, but that's what I would suggest. Yeah. Got it. And FODMAP, F-O-D-M-A-P, just for folks yes. who hadn't heard that before. Now, last question from Tony. I'm using MyFitnessPal to do full macros. The majority of my carbs are from fruits and veggies. I often get a notice from MyFitnessPal that I'm over my grams of sugar per day, especially if I have a couple of bananas or apples. I'm guessing that this isn't something to worry about, as I know my body is very happy with the consistent, consistent abundance of real food. Is that correct? Live to eat two bananas and tell the tale, you know? <laughs> You've got somebody else out there living from two bananas. Yes. Okay, yeah, I generally like my fitness pal for tracking. It's great, a great app for a lot of reasons. And, and, and this feature of theirs is something I don't love, Patrick. <laughs> you do get a bunch of messages and warnings, you know, if you're hit your calories or your protein or you've hit sodium. And yes, you also get a warning if your sugar is quote high. Now, in theory, this is a good thing because we don't want to eat too much sugar. But the problem is my fitness pal is basing that on total sugars, not added sugars. And added sugars are really mm. the thing that we want to minimize. And it depends who you're listening to on recommendations, but but very generally added sugar should be around 50 grams a day or less. And the reason why my fitness pal uses total sugars is because that's what was required on the labels until 2020. So one of the good things that came out of 2020 is that nutrition labels changed to also now include added sugars that were separate from mm. total sugars. Okay. So let's go through an example of why this is relevant. Before 2020, if you were to buy a bag of frozen raspberries, which is just the naturally occurring fruit, right? It would list carbohydrates as it does on the nutrition label. And then under that, it lists fiber. And then under that, it also would have total sugars. Now, the naturally occurring sugar in raspberries would be listed as a total sugar because natural sugar is a form of a sugar. So let's just say in a cup of raspberries or a serving, there's, it lists total sugars as like 20 grams. So that would be the data that's being pulled into my fitness pal. Now, as of 2020, with the new labels, under that total sugars, it would now also say including added sugars. And in this case for frozen raspberries, that line would have zero because there's no added mm. sugar to that product. And that would be the total that you care about keeping under 50 grams. Now, but let's compare that to something like a raspberry dessert frozen bar popsicle type thing, right? Where they blend raspberries with sugar. Before 2020, you would not know how much of the sugar was from the raspberries and how much of it was from the added sugar. Mm. So there'd be the line that would say total sugars and maybe in a frozen dessert bar, there's 40 grams. Now you would see that the added sugar maybe says 35 grams out of those 40. So then you would know, oh, wow, this, this frozen bar is not a lot of raspberries and it's a lot of added sugar. <laughs> So yep. the, the data in, in my fitness pal just hasn't been updated to reflect all of the new labels out there that are coming out, you know, in the last year. And so it's pulling in this total sugar. And so when they tell you that you've had too much, it's, it's accounting for naturally occurring sugar as well as added sugar. And I really tell people not to worry about that label, especially when they have fruit in their diet. 
I do want to kind of add on because this is a really hard topic for people to kind of dissociate or, or understand kind of the difference between added sugar and naturally occurring sugar that the sugar molecules in added sugar are in fact the same sugar molecules that exist in your fruit chemically same thing same carbon hydrogen added uh, oxygen same arrangement same structure all that stuff and this is why you can have added sugar as part of a healthy diet because your body is going to process it the same way as the sugar that is found in fruit the difference then is not the chemical structure of it. The difference is when you eat foods that have added sugar in them, the quantity ends up being too much generally. And, and this is not just because of the sugar that they add. It's because of fat as well, because processed foods mm. often add fat to make them taste delicious. And so what ends up happening is we end up just eating too much of that food because of its caloric density. So it's not the sugar molecule that's problematic, it's the dose that we've talked about before. And I just like an example of this, if you were to look at some ice cream that you know has some delicious candy and chocolate and all the other things that they add into these ice cream flavors, if you were to say, okay, I'm gonna get 50 grams of added sugar from that ice cream, in theory, 50 grams of added sugar only has 200 calories because 50 grams mm -hmm. times four calorie grams should only be 200 calories. Well, one of the ice cream brands that I looked up to get 50 grams of added sugar, you would actually end up eating 600 calories. Why? Because you're eating mm -hmm. the ice cream with the fat in it as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is where when we eat foods that have added sugar in them, they're very calorically dense. Nobody sits down to a bowl of added sugar. They sit down to food with added <laughs> sugar in it. <laughs> yep. And so this is how they come up with the guideline. It's not that at 50 grams of sugar molecules does your body combust, and that's exactly how much you can eat. It's at 50 grams of added sugar when we see them existing in these processed food products, we have had too many calories and too much of a, of a dose overall. And, and I think we went into that in even more detail in the added sugar podcast. Mm. So, so people can, can check that out. And I'm, I think we're going to start trying to add those links to these podcasts. I, I reference yep. in the, in the show notes to help yep. people out with that. So, yeah, so that, that's just kind of a distinguishing feature that I want to point out that the guideline is really to kind of keep overall quantity in line, not necessarily that, you know, at a certain gram of exactly that sugar molecule, we have a problem. Got it. What's the best place for folks or what's the best way for folks to ask a question for future Quick Bite episodes? I would say the best way is to be on my email list at optimizemenutrition.com slash email if you have not, only because I have a better system for saving them. But I do try to <laughs> I do try to save and tackle questions I get on social media as well. Awesome. Thank you, EC. Thank you to everybody out there who does send us questions. They're always incredibly good. I'm glad we have a means by which you can tackle some of these questions. So do keep keep them coming. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. Thank you for recommending the show to friends who might like it. They help find new listeners and that makes EC and I happy. So keep them coming. And we'll be back next week for another episode of The Consistency Project. EC here. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the show. Thank you as well for all the support for the five-star ratings and the reviews and for telling your friends or family about the podcast that really does help the podcast grow. And if you want to get the most recent info from me and be up to date on all of my content, the best place for that is my email list. So you can subscribe at optimizemenutrition.com slash email 
I send out emails weekly-ish, <laughs> and that's also the best place to get your question in the queue for Quick Bites episodes. So again, that's optimizemenutrition.com slash email, and there's also a link in the show notes.